As Steve mentioned, the giving season is upon us. And fueled by what I would call a hybrid tradition of commerce and Christianity, many of us are, are hybrid is all the, all the vogue, many of us are preparing our budgets, maybe. Maybe we're just hoping the money will be there, right? And we're preparing lists. Oh, maybe all of you have already got your presents. So we're, we're in the midst of or already have for some industrial types or are planning on all of these preparations. I know there, are, there is at least one person here who thrives, revels in the notion of going out on Christmas Eve and buying the presents. There's got to be at least one. It's not me. So I thought some reflections on gift giving would be appropriate. Reflections on experiences that I've had in receiving and giving gifts over the years. Here's one. Have you ever received a gift from someone that, upon opening it, to you seemed more about them than you? To the kid whose mother continually tells him to cut his hair, she gives a pair of scissors. Thanks, Mom. To the boy who's always late, his dad gives him an alarm clock. Amen. <laughs> Seems like they could have saved a whole bunch of trouble and just given a lump of coal, don't you think? Clearly, they've been naughty and not nice. How about this one? Have you, are, have you ever opened a present that you already knew what it was? either by surreptitious means <laughs> or, as often happens with my wife and I, come on, just tell me what you got me. <laughs> Here's another reflection on gift giving. Maybe you've received a present like I have before that wasn't on your list. Why did I bother writing a list? I mean, a list has purpose, right? It has a meaning. And if you ask for a list and you give a list and then you don't get what's on your list, you get something else. But then there are those unasked for gifts. And I would count them as more rare than common. The gifts that didn't make the list but rise to the top as being the best gift of all. That takes a rare combination of insight and timing and budgeting The historic background of the celebration of Christmas comes from the Bible, where we read that God the Son is born some 2,000 years ago in the virgin womb of a woman named Mary, who was the poor, a poor girl of 15 or 16 years old engaged to a carpenter. The technical term for that is the virgin birth. And it is, from a historic Christian point of view, the greatest gift ever given. And in some ways, it could fit all those categories that I just mentioned. How does that phrase strike you, the greatest gift ever given? What comes to mind? Does it seem odd to you or alien? Bizarre even? Maybe it brings up feelings of resentment or anger for some reason or another that's known only to you. 
Maybe you were already expecting a message like this, and so me saying the greatest gift ever given just feels like it's Christmas again. You knew it was in the present. Well, regardless of where you're coming from, I believe God has a lesson for all of us today. I believe that God wants to show us today that the incarnation, which is God the Son, taking to himself human flesh in the person of Jesus, I believe he wants to show us that the incarnation really is good news. So my text this morning comes from John's Gospel, John's account of the Christmas story, which is remarkably short. We'll be looking at two verses, John 1.1 and John 1.14. If you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles or just listen to the Word as I read it. This is God's eternal Word. It is always true. It cannot be broken. Let us listen to it. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Merry Christmas. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. Father, as we turn now to considering this greatest gift of the Incarnation, Regardless of where we're coming from, regardless of what we expected, Lord, would you meet with us? We've asked several times, we ask again, Lord, we beg of you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things in your law. For we ask this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Why is the Incarnation really good news? I'd like to explore this looking at two ideas, just two thoughts here. The first one is that the Incarnation is good news because it is a noun. Now, my mother is an English teacher, so I get into English. Or you can think of it like this. The Incarnation is good news because it's a fact. It's, it's something that happened. We're also going to look, though, and we can also think of the good news of the Incarnation because it is a verb. It's something that we experience. It's an action word. So first, let's look at incarnation as a noun or as a fact. We notice that the incarnation as a fact, that fact is good news. And what is the incarnation as a fact? What is the incarnation itself? Look at verse 1 of our text. Some of you may actually know this by heart. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Greek term for word, and John originally wrote this in Greek, the Greek term for word is logos. And the word logos, if you think about it, sounds a little bit like our word for logic. So there's more to the Greek word for word than word. You can see that by the connection between logos and logic. There's more to logic, for example, than just words. They have to work together, don't they? They have to be in a certain order. They have to come in a certain way. And in fact, this word logos is even more profound than that. It has a deeper meaning even than that. It has a rich history, and I'd like to explain that to you a little bit. In John's day, there was a Greek tradition 
that held that the supreme mediator, or the supreme creator of all, all humanity, all creation, was pure and undefiled. But the creation itself was defiled. So that in order for the creator of all things, the ultimate God, if you will, to have any interaction with his defiled and sinful and ugly and besmirched, you get the idea, creation, there had to be something in between so that God, in this understanding, wouldn't get his hands dirty, so to speak. This was Logos. This was the idea of Logos. And so the Logos was the cosmic mediator between the Supreme Creator and humanity. And it went even farther than this to the ancient Greek philosophers. The Logos was the actual personification of God's wisdom. So in Greek, we might read the sentence like this. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. I think if I were a Greek philosopher in the first century, I would go along with that first phrase, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. But when I would read that the Logos was God, I would have some trouble with that. Because the Logos can't be the Creator. The Logos has to somehow enable the Holy Creator to have contact with His creation. They can't be the same entity, the same being. So I might be asking, John, what is he talking about? Remember, the whole Greek tradition here, the whole philosophical tradition is to protect the ultimate being, the ultimate Creator. Why would John begin his gospel with such a sentence? This is scandalous. The people who would read this would be, would be horrified to think that God was the Logos. Maybe he didn't mean it. Look at verse 3. All things were made through the Logos. And without the Logos, there wasn't anything made that was made. I guess he means it. This is, I mean, this is a frontal attack, almost. Well, maybe we can deal with, with the Logos as the Creator, sort of. But, skip down to verse 14. The Logos became flesh? Are you serious? Are you kidding? That is blasphemy. To the Greek philosophical mind, that would be unthinkable that God would somehow, the Creator would somehow take flesh to Himself, become defiled in flesh, and yet that is what John is saying. That's exactly what he is saying. It is interesting to me that John's version of the Christmas story is just really a phrase. The Word became flesh. And when I read Scripture, you heard me say, Merry Christmas, that, that's it, that's the Christmas. Luke spends, what, 190 verses going over this thing? 
And it's, Luke's is great too, but John in one phrase, one phrase, three or four words, John so simply and yet so profoundly says everything that needs to be said about Christmas, about the Incarnation. So this is the Incarnation. This is the noun. This is the fact of the Incarnation. The triune Godhead in the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, takes human flesh to Himself. This, I say, is good news. This is good news. When I was a kid, I watched a show. I don't remember if it was on TV or in the movies, but probably some of you have heard of it. It's about the boy in the bubble. Ring a bell to anybody? I'm a biology teacher, so I'm interested in autoimmune diseases. And the boy in the bubble basically has a problem where if he is exposed to any germ at all, he has no ability to fight against it. And so he has to live his entire life in a sterile, encased, plastic world. And I think one of the most touching moments in, in the movie that I remember is when he embraces and kisses his parents through the plastic. The good news of the Incarnation is that we are not left to embrace our Creator through the plastic. That God is not afraid of us. That God is not separated from us. But the, the good news of the fact, of the noun of the Incarnation, is that God comes to us. He draws near to us, risking defilement in a sense, risking becoming soiled with His sinful creation. And we see Him in the flesh. Without this, we are doomed forever to be separated from God. So I came up with this phrase, hugging God through the plastic. That's not Christmas. That's not good news. That's heartache. That's, that's pain. That's hurt. That's rejection, isn't it? But that's the only good news that's offered through Greek philosophy. And I believe, viewed even through the lens of the ancient Jewish faith, Moses' God would by many have been perceived as equally distant as this. God does not see us as filthy. God does not hold us at arm's length. God is not angry. Another movie I saw once, and I don't remember what it was, but there was a, a, a businessman, a dad at the table with a starched shirt, white, and his kid had just eaten a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know what I'm getting heading for? Did I mention the shirt was white? And this boy comes up and gives his dad a hug with all the goo, the peanut butter and jelly goo. And you know what the dad did? He pulled back. I don't want to get my shirt with peanut butter and jelly on it. Because what, it cost 20, 30, 40 bucks at the most? This is your son, your child. 
And I thought of that as I was thinking about this, hugging God through the plastic. God doesn't keep us at arm's length. He, he draws us to Himself. In fact, He comes to us knowing full well who we are and what it is that we have done. We do not have to wash our hands to hug Him. He, in fact, isn't even waiting for us to hug Him. He has come close to us. He has taken flesh to Himself. He has hugged us in the Incarnation. Ancient cultures often constructed pyramid-like structures from which you had to climb up. And maybe you've seen this in various books or films where you climb up thousands of steps to sort of reach the peak where you had to perform elaborate rituals, often bloody rituals, in order to appease the angry gods. Right? That is not good news. The good news, the fact of the Incarnation, the noun is that God has come down from His high tower. He has descended the stairs. He has brought the bloody ritual. He performed it on Himself. He did it for us. He comes to us. Which leads me to my second thought about the good news of the Incarnation. Not only is the noun not only is the fact a good news, the verb, the action, the experience is good news as well. In his book entitled Miracle, C.S. Lewis, meditating on the character of God, writes this. He says, All three persons of the Trinity are declared incomprehensible. Not only difficult to understand, in a sense impossible to understand, God, he continues, God is pronounced inexpressible, unthinkable, invisible to all created beings. Then Lewis writes, the second person is not only bodiless, but being God, so unlike man, that if self-revelation has, had been his sole purpose, he would have not have chosen to be incarnate in a human form. In other words, if God's only purpose in the Incarnation was to reveal His true character, to give us the fact of Himself, it wouldn't have been as a human because God is so different than we are. He is the Creator. And admittedly, Lewis is hypothesizing here, but I think there's, a, there's something profoundly important about this. The Incarnation isn't just about us seeing God as God. The Incarnation is about what God did for us. It's about the redemption that He has worked out. It's about the verb. It's about the action. In point of fact, if we were to debate this, you can't really separate the two. You can't separate seeing Him and seeing what He does or experiencing what He does. He is the God-man. Fully God and fully man. And it is this God-man who comes to us the Word becomes flesh. He comes to redeem. He comes to save. Well, what does this mean for us? I think, first of all, that if God really indeed has taken human flesh to Himself and comes to us in the Incarnation, shouldn't we be thankful? Shouldn't we be in awe? Shouldn't we be excited and grateful for what God is doing and has done? Jesus didn't just tell us He loves us. Jesus didn't just send us a letter or text message us. 
He came in person, live, in the flesh. I read an interesting article. And I think, I think it was in the New Yorker. This is about a year ago. It was describing an exhibit at the, I believe it was the Chicago Natural Museum, the Museum of Science in Chicago. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, at, at, the, at the museum, there was some exhibit of live animal at the entrance. And a father and a daughter and the woman who wrote this article were having a conversation about whether or not you really needed a live animal to sort of show off this exhibit. And I'm not remembering. This wasn't an illustration I prepared for, but it's one that strikes me as particularly relevant. So it was some animal that was there that was showing off what an important and exciting exhibit this was. And the daughter just didn't seem to think a live animal was necessary to get the point across. They could have used a stuffed one and gotten the same message. Would a stuffed animal, would, would a... Would a stand-in, would a, a cardboard cutout have, have done the trick? Would a letter have done the trick? The answer is no. It would not have done the trick. Only in coming himself does the incarnation resonate with good news. He comes personally. He approaches us in all of our brokenness, in all of our hurt, in all of our agony and despair, all of our sadness and sorrow and heartache in all of our indifference even, even in our ho-hum, carelessness, he approaches us. Even in our pride, our self-righteous, self-exalting, God-abasing pride, he approaches us. In our unbelief, he approaches us in love. So how does this translate into action for us? What about our mission our work as a church in light of the Incarnation. I think that for us, as with God, the Incarnation is not just a noun. It's not just a fact. It's not just a doctrine that we hold. It's not just something that we remember and celebrate with rituals and ceremonies at this time, a certain time every year, with certain traditions and practices both at home and in society and at church. It isn't just that. It is an event. It is a verb. It is something that we do. It is something that shows us what we should be doing. Again, verse 14 of our text says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A book that I love by Paul David Tripp, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, uh, he comments on this text when he writes, the Incarnation is not just an event. It's not just a fact. It also establishes an agenda, a set of plans to accomplish a goal. God's agenda for the church, Tripp writes, is to be an incarnational community on earth so that our very presence would reveal His grace and truth-laden glory. Tripp says, not just an event, but an agenda. I take that to mean not just a noun, but a verb. Agenda literally in Latin means something to be done, things to be done. Since Jesus became flesh, that means that we have a certain kind of becoming flesh, that we have a certain kind of incarnational mission to carry out. 
He dwelt among us. This draws from the Old Testament imagery of a tabernacle that's pitched in the midst of the people. That God literally dwelt, he resided amongst the people when the tabernacle was erected. God has pitched his tent in the midst of the camp in the person of Jesus, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our pilgrimage, in the midst of our wilderness, because the tabernacle was in the wilderness. They were longing, aching, yearning for the promised land. They were not there. And so God pitches his tent amongst the people. So where are we in terms of fulfilling our own incarnational ministry in the midst of the lives of the people God has placed around us? Here's my theory, and I'm speaking from experience. Too often Christians like me expect others to draw near to me, to mount the steps of my tower of power, to accomplish certain things, to perform certain rituals, even bloody rituals, in order to gain the acceptance that I have to offer. Too often, my agenda, our agenda as believers is to change the people around us before we identify with them. Too often, people who are in even Bible-believing denominations like the PCA, our agenda is one that effectively says, you come to me and to my faith on my terms. I'm not coming to you on your terms. Basically, this is if God were saying, Clean yourself up. Get the right hairdo. Get your tattoos lasered off. Take out the piercings. Have the right sexual behavior. The right philosophy. The right dress code. The right political party affiliation. The right behavior in your children. And make sure you send them to the right schools. And give them the right diet. And then, maybe then, we'll have a committee meeting. Because we're good at having committee meetings. And see if you qualify to be my friend. That's good news. I don't think so. I really like some of the trite sayings. Not all of them. Some of them are really trite. But some of them really say it, don't they? How about this one? You are the only Jesus that some people will ever meet. I like that. That's an incarnational saying. Because that says that you and your life and your circle of friends and the people you work with, the people that are in your family, the people that are next to you in your neighborhood, those people get to see Jesus when they meet you. What kind of Jesus are they meeting? Are you forcing them to climb this tower of power so that they can be close to God, so that God might notice them? Or are you coming near to them as God has come near to you? Clothed in their flesh, living among them, walking with them, embracing them as they are, sticky fingers and all. This isn't just a problem, beloved, with relationships that we have outside the church. Maybe I'm out of time. I probably shouldn't go there. This is a problem, I believe, even most importantly and most primarily with our relationships inside the church, among the people of God, among the people of the incarnation, among the Jesus people, the people that know and love Jesus. And it's as if we're saying what Paul says we shouldn't do in Galatians. 
You're saved by grace, but you've got to make it on your own strength. You get into the family by grace, but now you've got to earn your position by merit. So in conclusion, the incarnation, as I see it in this text, and I believe as God wants us to see it, is a bridge that God has erected from heaven to earth into our lives. Through the humanity, through the flesh, through the true human nature, through the person, the person of Jesus. And this may seem odd or alien to you. It may be painful to you for reasons I do not know. You might know this story very well, inside and out. But this is not hard to understand. This is not complicated. It is profound, but it is also simple. God has explained himself clearly. In fact, that's what the text says when it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. It was obvious. It was plain. Verse 18, which I haven't spoken of, says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. The word Jesus, he has explained him, some translations say. What I find interesting in John's Gospel is that he is actually doing what I'm saying we should do in writing the words that he's writing. Did you catch that? He is using the word logos to explain the Christmas story. He is taking the flesh out of the ideologies and the philosophies, the wrong and incorrect and unbelieving ideologies and philosophies. He's taking that flesh from them and clothing the message of Christmas in those words and explaining and translating it so that they can understand. Do you see that? He didn't speak in a language they didn't understand. He talked about the Logos, which anybody would have understood. And using their own sword, he dispatches them with gospel love. We have the same mission. We have the same calling to take what it is that is characteristic of the people's lives around us, their struggles, their hurts, their brokenness, their sins, their weaknesses, their, their ickiness, their sticky hands, and to take those things and to bring the gospel to reality in the context, in that context. So I ask, who's someone whose language you can speak today Who's someone whose words you can use to translate the good news of Christmas? Who's someone into whose life you can build a bridge with your own flesh, laying down your life, taking up the cross as he's done? Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also found in Christ Jesus, who, being the eternal Son of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but lowered himself abased himself, denigrated himself, stooped down in humiliation and took to himself a true human nature, laying aside all the privileges of deity that he had enjoyed for eternity forever past and for a season was clothed in weakness. This gift might not be on their gift list. It might even call into question some of their behavior at some point, like the mother who gave the scissors, right? 
And that's what the gospel does. It does call us to repentance. It calls us to a U-turn. It calls us to change our minds. But who is it that does the changing of the mind? Who is it that changes the behavior? Is it us in our insistence, in our criticism, in our judgmentalism, in our high tower of power? Is it us that does that? Or is it God himself working through love because mercy triumphs over judgment? Our gospel confrontation cannot take place until we have had a gospel identification. Until we have taken up our, their burdens and their troubles. Part of the humility that Jesus experienced shows us that we must understand the gospel is for us as much, if not more, than them. One thing I love that this church has done twice now, I believe, is gone to help the victims of Hurricane Katrina. Not only that, this church has a great history of missions, doesn't it? What is it that missionaries always say? Short-term, mid-term, long-term. What do they always say? They say, I came to serve and to bring a blessing but it was I who was greatly blessed. I came thinking that I had what they needed and I discovered that they had what I needed. This is what happens when we are a church on mission. We lay aside our prejudices, our criticisms, and we discover that God is changing us as we build bridges into people's lives. Let's ask God for help to do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace, Your goodness, Your favor, Your kindness, Your mercy. It has been lavished upon us. Grace upon grace. The grace of the Gospel instead of the grace of the law. The grace of Jesus instead of the grace of Moses. Lord, we have such a High Priest who has come down and was made perfect. He was made fitted by His sufferings. He died and rose again. And He has given us His mission. And He has given us His Spirit. Lord, would You help us to fulfill that mission, both for those that are outside our families, our faith family, and for those that are within it. We ask that it would truly be an incarnational Christmas for us this year. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.